Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 26, Enter the Dragon. like to welcome Mike White of the Projection Booth Podcast back to the Super 70. Mike has since 2011 published a whopping 520 standard episodes plus special reports on the Projection Booth in which he has covered everything from modern sci-fi films like Annihilation to post-Soviet era period films like Kristalyov, My Car. You can find the Projection Booth wherever you find podcasts except on Spotify, but you can especially find it at www theprojectionbooth.com. We will be using the Criterion Blu-ray from 2020, which should have just a one or second delay from the DVD from Warner Brothers that has been in popular circulation since 1999. We are going to count down to play. Three, two, one, play. All right, Mike, let's start with a time-honored practice at the Projection Booth podcast and ask our guest host, when was the first time you saw Enter the Dragon and what did you think? Oh gosh, I can't even remember the first time I saw Enter the Dragon. I mean, this came out when I was one year old, so Bruce Lee was always a thing in my life. Um, I grew up in the era of people having Farrah Fawcett and or or both uh Bruce Lee posters in their room and especially that him with like the I think like black outfit and he's making the pose and so yeah uh Enter the Dragon I think I finally officially sat down and watched it maybe in the early 90s and just went through all the Bruce Lee films I'd seen all of them on cable or just regular TV before but that was the first time I really actually sat down and paid attention and finally saw you know, where Jim Kelly got his start. Um, And then, yeah, I I continue to watch it to this day, actually. Good. We'll try not to spend most of the podcast talking about his awesome hair. (laughs) Jim Kelly's or Bruce Lee's? (laughs) Jim Kelly's. Oh, my God. Yeah. You could spend a whole podcast on that. Good. We should start one just on movie star hair. So (laughs) this was actually released in Man's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. And Klaus claims that only a film called uh, To Russia With Love which opened Christmas 1972, made more money at Man's Chinese Theater than Enter the Dragon. I could not find this notation anywhere else. And Bruce Lee here famously offered $75 a week by Sir Run Run Shaw in, uh, I believe it was 1970. He turned him down. And his second offer was $2,000 a picture. And then his third offer was a blank check. Mm. Lee turned that down too. So we're at the Shaolin Temple here. In a scene that famously in the script that you that you sent me by Michael Allen, uh, all fights coordinated by Bruce Lee. <laughs> yes, that was a nice little uh, little thing in there. And with that script, definitely a very different beginning. I mean, they knew that Bruce Lee was going to be the star, so they added quite a few scenes to make it start and end with him. And I was shocked to discover on the Warner Brothers edition of this, which I believe was printed in 1999, uh, Linda Lee comes out and says there's there were cut scenes to the film uh, in between his death and the time of release, which was about a month. Um, oh, that that act, by the way, that gymnast role was one of only three 
moves that Bruce Lee ever had someone stunt double for him. And it was there. All three of them were flips. Mm. But anyway, this this scene uh, after the fight and after he initially talks to Braithwaite, uh, that scene was cut because it was it was deemed uh, uh, excessive. It was extraneous in a way that seems astounding to me now. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the beginning takes a while to get going. I mean, this scene, the scene with Sammo Hung, the scene with Braithwaite, but even with, with Braithwaite, it makes some sense. But then that pause where he speaks to his student, it's just like, okay, can we get going here? Yeah. <laughs> I was amazed that that screenplay had it actually starting with Williams's character right. and going from Williams to Roper to Lee. I was surprised too. Now, Braithwaite here. Now, again, I had not seen this in about 20 years since I, I purchased the DVD in the late 90s. And I had I saw it then probably the first time in seven or eight years. I saw it on the Encore channel in the early 90s when Encore was playing all that great old stuff from the 70s. But uh, it, it occurred to me when I watched this about three or four weeks ago, uh, it, Braithwaite is M. Is he not? I mean, this is effectively a remake of Dr. No. Yeah, yeah, pretty much is. Which I have to say, I, I don't think that I can think of another remake of a Bond film. But if Other you're going to Thunderball, <laughs> <laughs> right? No, that's true. I didn't even think of that. But if you're if you're going to choose a remake, uh, why not Enter the Dragon? Uh, I think I like this one more than Doctor No. Oh yeah, it's certainly shorter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is a nice tight uh what hour and 40 minutes just yeah let's let's get going here and off we go it's really quick and i think that's one of the charms of enter the dragon is uh, and the fight scenes take up obviously so much time you're more engaged in that it's very well edited i have to say oh yeah remember who the editor was but it was edited um shockingly enough in in hollywood all the dubs and all of the post-production other than the editing was done in hong kong I didn't realize until I rewatched this last week that Key Luke is everywhere on this movie. That we've got uh, the uh, sensei being voiced by Key Luke, that we've got uh, his dad being voiced by Key Luke, and that we've got Mr. Han being voiced by Key Luke. I mean, that guy was very busy on this production. He was, and he's very prolific in the 70s. He was used a lot. Oh, yeah. And if you go ahead. I was going to say, I mostly know him as the sensei in uh, Kung Fu. That was where I I really knew him because I grew up watching Kung Fu. Um, so, you know, most people uh, of the generation uh, older than mine would say that he was, you know, Charlie Chan's number one son. Right, right. Which Bruce Lee was up for that role in the late 60s. Okay, so the credit here, uh, Bruce Lee and John Saxon. That struck me even in the early '90s when I was only, you know, in my as a teenager. That was that was weird, having a double credit. Like, who is John Saxon? Right. You know, now ten years later, after I'd seen another hundred movies, I now I know who John Saxon is. But that double credit seems strikingly strange and very unfair. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were kind of hedging their bets on a lot of the stuff. I don't think anybody knew for sure that this was going to do what it was going to do. I mean, even to the point where they were fighting Bruce Lee about the title, wanting to call it uh, blood and steel. Is that right? And then, right. 
uh, he wanted to use the Enter the Dragon title and was like, no, no, no. And then finally they realized, oh, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. That's great. Jim Kelly and his, his awesome hairdo there and the double-decker bus. So here, and Gilbert Hubs we'll get to later. But here's uh, another question. Now, I know that you've been to mainland China before because I, I keep up with your Twitter. Uh, did you ever get a chance to go down to Hong Kong? I did not, unfortunately. Um, I've always wanted to go, especially being a fan of Hong Kong films. But no, unfortunately, I was not able to make it down there. Fighting sequences staged by Bruce Lee. And, and Lalo Schifrin, we've got a lot to say about him later. Uh, all the credits here are, are very <laughs> Roper and his many bags of luggage, which is a <laughs> recurring joke through the, the opening of the film. I've been to Hong Kong several times. Uh, I went in college as a part oh, of nice. this uh, exchange program where we got to go over and, and go to uh, several universities. So I got to go to the University of Beijing, Xi, and uh, Chengdu, Changsha, Lhasa, and uh, a wow. few more that I can't remember. Um, but we went down, Hong Kong was, uh, when we went to Shanghai, of course, but Hong Kong was the party. That was every trip that we went to. They told us, okay, at the end of the trip, we've got two or three days in Hong Kong. And you have to, you're required as a student in this course to participate at least one day at the university. The other two days, you can do whatever you want. But that one day, you have to be in class. And, of course, <laughs> the majority of us were in class every day. But Hong Kong was so fun to be in, we just kind of forgot that we had, you know, scholarly uh, obligations to perform there. Um, so I, I'd like to point out a few things as things go on. So here is um, uh, this sequence reminds me of the opening of every James Bond film where James Bond goes into M's office and there's always an expert in the room and they review the, the case before they go out to uh, find the bad guy. And this photograph apparently was taken by the, uh, uh, the photographer on the helicopter and the, the pilot was actually the monk that Lee talks to oh, before right. the mission begins. That actor and, was a pilot. And that photo is faked. It's the island. And then they also photographed a, um, a mansion and then added the two things together. They, there is no such thing as Hans Island, unfortunately. Oh, that's a shame. Right. I was, I was really looking forward to that. <laughs> you wanted to go to Hans Island. I wanted to go to Hans Island. I actually spent a lot of time, uh, ashamedly now, on Google Maps searching for this exact island. Yeah, and the, there's a little documentary that's on the Criterion, and they showed, I think they show a photo of what the island looks like for real. Uh, and then, yeah, they were talking about uh, that they added the mansion into it later on. And then they talked in the uh, Robert Klaus book about the making of it as far as where they actually shot it and all of the uh, tennis courts that they took over. And then you can see the tennis court lines later on when you see the guys doing their practicing. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here the, the evil specter of uh, heroin specter. I used, just used that word, another James Bond reference. The specter of uh, heroin is brought up. Heroin having a direct tie to opium, which has a, a sinister uh, implication in Chinese culture that goes back hundreds of years. In, in the West, it's always been, well, that's a narcotic, that's bad. But particularly in Asia, it's, it's very, very, very well frowned upon. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had uh, wars over opium, if memory serves. Yeah. Very devastating for that culture. So an executive at Warner Brothers said that um, – after photography, the market for 
martial arts movies was over. So after principal photography was done, he said, uh, we'll never get anywhere with this picture. That seems extremely short-sighted. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The long term. I don't even know why they would think that. Well, it reminds me of that guy who turned down the Beatles contract and said, well, it's guitar music is on the way out. Right. Right. A a complete failure to to see where the market was headed. I wonder what color he was. (laughs) I did like this whole idea of we have to set up why we can't go in and just shoot Mr. Han. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Why doesn't somebody take a 45? We have to have this whole thing about guns and why there can't be guns on the island and guns and martial arts, at least in the uh, producer's eyes, didn't mix. So it was this whole thing of like, well, he had a bad experience with guns, so he doesn't allow them on the island. And the way that international waters is, if we knew that he had guns on the island, then we could go in. But he doesn't have guns. We, apparently, they know he's got heroin being processed. They know all of this stuff, but they can't prove it. So that's why they need to hire Lee as the secret agent. Yes, it's all this uh, legalese going on. Yeah. And, and Lee dressed to the nines here in this oh, yeah. three-piece suit. So Aberdeen Harbor, this is on the south side of Hong Kong Island, actually went to Aberdeen. And that's one of the reasons why I love uh, watching Enter the Dragon is all this seemingly pristine footage of, of Aberdeen and, and the junk floats. And when I was there, it was not nearly this large, just over the decades, more and more junks disappear and more and more Chinese stop uh, making their living that way. And I would say that it was about a third or maybe 25% of this size when I got wow. there. It was actually quite small. And there was this lamentation in Hong Kong about, oh, well, it's not very good that the junks are we're going away. We're losing a part of our heritage. But there was another side of the argument that was, it is good that people are not living in floating ghettos. So it's a, it's a constant argument. Yeah, I can see that as far as how are we going to replace the culture or capture the culture and make sure that people knew what was going on. Yeah, how do we uh, improve the living conditions without gentrifying? Right. Right. Because I am sure, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I am sure that those junks are being replaced with yacht clubs. Oh, yeah. 100%. Which political party, I don't know, but this is happening. So here we have the flashback within a flashback. I always like that. And the incredible Angela Mao. She's wonderful. Oh, so good. And really packs a punch for what is effectively a cameo. Yeah. But she was known that that guy look is not Jackie Chan, but he looks like Jackie Chan after he gets hit. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about, you know, seeing this movie. And I think I actually saw uh, the parody of the film more than I saw the movie when I was growing up. I saw a fistful of, uh, is a fistful of chopsticks or fistful of yen? Um, so many times uh, watching Kentucky Fried Movie. And then I went back and I rewatched it again last night, just that segment. And my God, they do a great job of parodying this movie. Yeah, I have not seen Kentucky Fried Movie in, in probably 30 years, but I, I remember laughing through all of it. And I do remember the, the chop suey section. Oh, God, it is so good. <laughs> and there are lines that I was watching Bruce Lee do, and I was like, why do I know this line so well? And then I went back and watched the parody and I was like, okay, because they made fun of this line, that whole, what was that? This is not an (laughs) exhibition. (laughs) 
Well, and that's something that I think a lot of people miss in, in Enter the Dragon and a lot of Lee's other movies, if unfortunately a lot of people don't see his other films. But Lee ha- did have a very healthy sense of humor. And particularly in Way of the Dragon, a lot of that humor comes out. Oh, yeah. A movie that he wrote and directed. And it, he truly was an actor. And I would like to see more of uh, her films, particularly since we're in the middle of her segment. Yeah. Yeah, I just downloaded a couple yesterday. I'm curious to check them out. I oh, think, of her films? Yeah, Deadly China Doll might be one of them, and I can't remember the other one that I grabbed. But yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see more of her. Deadly China Doll sounds very apropos, particularly <laughs> for the segment. Yeah, yeah. This is weird. How this old lady just closes her out. It's like, nope, I'm not going to help you, and basically leads to her death. Yeah, that's. That's very strange. Uh, that could go into the you know the Kitty Genovese type of thinking or the mm-hmm. the alleged type of thinking because that case is obviously very controversial as to what it really means when you've got neighbors that hear some obvious crime that's happening in the street. When when I was in Beijing, um, I, Deng Xiaoping had just died in, in the late nineties, and I'd never. Never, ever thought I was ever in danger anywhere I was in China. No. You could go out in the middle of the night and walk for miles and no one would ever harm you. Yeah, that whole idea of people don't commit crimes because they expect that they'd be caught. Right. You know, all the all the cameras, all the facial recognition, all the tracking, all the monitoring, it's bad in some respects. And in other ways, I was exactly like you. I felt like I could walk around any time, day or night in Shanghai and be completely safe. Yes. A, a city that has a horrible reputation of crime uh, before the, the communists took over, for sure. Yeah. Now, the cross-pollination, if I can use that word, between... Gilbert Hubbs, the cinematographer, and Robert Klaus. Very successful here. And, of course, the editing, when she picks up this glass, and then it switches, the camera switches 180 degrees, and then you see the glass comes towards her. Oh, and that's, yeah. that, you could do that very badly, this one here where it forces zooms from Bob Walter to, to the glass. That could be a bad, cheesy TV moment from picket in the middle seventies in the $6 million man or something of that nature. And it's particularly surprising because Robert Klaus was decidedly hired. Paul Heller admits because he was cheap (laughs) and they got Gilbert hubs because he was available. And then when hubs got to Hong Kong, Klaus found out that he had never used a 35 millimeter camera before and had never used the lenses before. And they shot this whole movie with two cameras and three lenses. And so their ability, maybe it's this Orson Welles idea of, I don't have very much. I have to economize and, and, and deal with uh, what I have and get an exponential result out of it. Uh, I think they did very well with the talent that they had and the instruments on hand. Oh, 100%. And if memory serves, this was only like the third feature that Klaus directed? Yeah, he was a newbie. Yeah. And then basically the entire team picks up and moves on to Black Belt Jones. (laughs) Even to the point of there being lines in Black Belt Jones that are pretty much identical to lines that are here in Enter the Dragon. That whole, you know... you come right out of a comic book i think is um you should be in a comic book in black belt jones oh that's another one i got to put on the list that i I haven't seen i'd seen another one of his movies as a kid but it might have been black samurai 
Um, I did have someone point out to me that Bruce Lee was walking over graves in that scene, and that's bad luck. And then I would yeah. shake my finger and say, in Western culture. Exactly. Yeah, Black Belt Jones is fantastic. Three the Hard Way I really like, but I would recommend that people stay away from pretty much anything else. Um, like, these guys had a really bad reputation of doing sequels, so stuff like Hot Potato and Golden Needles. Um, yeah, there were some really bad ones that they did. And I can't remember if they were also behind uh, Cleopatra Jones and the Temple of Gold, but that's another sequel that you want to stay away from. But it's kind of sad because Robert Klaus's first film, Darker Than Amber, I don't know if things have changed in the last couple of years, but it was very unavailable for a long, long time on um, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray. I don't know if it has since come out. I didn't take a look before we started recording, but yeah, it was nearly impossible to find. Black Belt Jones, that was 1974, Three the Hard Way, same year. Black Samurai 76, Death Detective 76, and the Tattoo Connection 78. Yeah, just watch those first couple and then forget and then, it. Then call it. Yeah. And Jim Kelly was uh, trained in Okinawan karate, and he won four championships in 1971. So he was on the map. I don't go for, like, gushing over celebs, but I heard that Jim Kelly was going to be at the uh, Motor City Comic Con a few years ago, and I actually just was like, okay, that's it. I got to make the pilgrimage and go over and meet this guy, just shake his hand. That's all I wanted to do. And I was just, it was obviously a few years before he passed away, but I'm so glad that I did it because it was so great just to be in his presence. Even as an old man, he was just really carried himself so well. And I was afraid that he was going to kick my ass if I'd said anything <laughs> wrong. No, it, it really actually quite a good actor. Should have had a better career. Yeah. You know, I, I really liked him. Now, this guy, the the heavy against Roper here, that is the ref from the Karate Kid. Nice. I, I just happened to come across that. I was like, who is this guy with the handlebars I've seen in a million things? Everyone else is practically an English actor that they found in Hong Kong. They put in this film, and when they did overdubs, they overdubbed it with American accents. <laughs> John Saxon doing his stuff, man, really can carry himself well. He can. And unfortunately, um, most of the time I've seen this film with other people or if other people see it on a recommendation, they come to me, they say, that's the guy from, uh, he was the cop in from Dust Till Dawn. Oh, right. That's, that's really unfortunate. Uh, Saxon has 60 or 70 credits to his name and, and he I, should be known as more than that. I don't know if what the state of his hair is, but he looks like a man going bald and really trying to not. And it, it didn't change. No. For 40 years, he became known for it. it. And the level of grayness didn't really change. No, no. That's weird that what you were saying about how people know him. Cause for me growing up, he was the cop from uh, nightmare on Elm street. That's right. That would be the other reference. Yes, absolutely. And who is the who is the boyfriend in Nightmare on Elm Street? Uh, Johnny Depp. Yep, you're right. It's Angela Mao, years. by the way, the, the reason I brought up uh, Jim Kelly's pedigree is Angela Mao also, she was an expert in Hapkido and Kung Fu. And I think Lee was really good about uh, finding those people that had specific styles and bringing them in. And he knew exactly how to use them as tools, just, just like any good director like 
uh, Spielberg would say, I want this type of actor for this type of role in this, these types of scenes. Right. He was doing the same thing just with fights. Well, yeah, that whole idea of all the different levels that he had in Game of Death and especially like, you know, having Kareem Abdul-Jabbar where it's just like, okay, well, let's see what little Bruce Lee is going to do against huge Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, that's right. Game of Death was very specifically designed that way. Yeah. All right, here we go to the uh, the Cobra Kai <laughs> of uh, Oakland, and I've I have tried to read this badge that he walks in front of a million times, and I cannot read it. This one here, something karate, and, and they, I, they block it out. I was very uh, surprised that he was not the original choice for this role. It was the gentleman that played. Um, Black Samson was originally supposed to be in here. When is it? Rockney Tarkington. That and sounds he familiar. Called off like right beforehand and was like, nope, I don't want to be part of it. And then they ended up getting Jim Kelly in such a move. Well, to this benefit. And here, of course, I watched this again just this morning and I thought, oh, wow, I didn't know that uh, Williams was from Minneapolis. <laughs> you couldn't tell from his accent? <laughs> right. Yeah, this is very similar to the beginning of uh, Three the Hard Way, which is nice, where they try to plant some drugs on him, and then he does the whole trying to set me up, and then <laughs> kicks the shit out of the cops. <laughs> it's always nice seeing Jim Kelly kick the shit out of cops. <laughs> well, that's every cop's worst fear is a black man who can protect himself. That's right. Yeah. By the way, I, I find it um, astounding and fitting and right that Detroit has a Motor City Comic Con. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. actually called that Motor City. It Comic-Con. is. That, that's, yeah. that's brilliant. Our Comic Con is called uh, Comic Palooza. Okay. Which All is right. great and it's fun and it's, it's, it's the second largest in Texas. That's, that's fine. But uh, I, after hearing that, I wish they would rename it Space City Comic Con. <laughs> Just more distinctive. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. And so I, I also like, like how you can look into the character of each person and who they pick on the boat. Bruce Lee has the, the old man. Um, John Saxon chooses the, uh, the single woman, right? And Williams chooses the, the, the man who's got to look after his kid because where is the mother probably uh, dead or working somewhere, right? Yeah. And it's nice. All those damn suitcases. Yeah. <laughs> and you never see what's in them. I mean, he just has a gi, right? Like he's going right. to wear a gi that's actually provided to him when he gets there. And you would think that Williams would be carrying a lot more because he decorates his whole room when he gets there. Like we're, we'll talk about it, but he's got all these posters that he hangs up. So I'm not sure where he's keeping all of those. It's not in that very small airline bag that no. he got for free when he checked in. <laughs> And the guy, the, the um, New Zealander, I can't remember the gentleman who plays him, but he he was overdubbed because they thought that he his accent wasn't strong enough. <laughs> and, and then he's like, and the guy that they chose to overdub me just sounded terrible. Oh, I'm trying to find him. I've got the IMD pulled up, but I can't. Uh, yeah, he is a New Zealander. And he, he was the real deal, too. He was a karate champion. And they talked about this um, 
junk that they are shooting on that they had another one that they had hired and did all this work to clean it up, like scrubbing the decks and make sure that it was ready for the camera and where they're going to put the camera and all this stuff. In the morning they went to shoot, the guy had left the harbor. (laughs) (laughs) So they really quick had to scramble and find another junk that they could shoot on. Well, and Klaus writes in his book how the, in order to get that long zoom shot, he they had set up on top of one of the buildings with a telephoto. Um, well, I can't even imagine how much that cost. Yeah, and they had to to pull back very slowly, and it took them uh, two days to shoot it. They spent the entire day and and skipped it, and they had several mistakes. And they finally, on the last shot on the second day, they finally got it. Now, these range of buildings on the right, I wanted to point this out. That's near Stanley on the right hand side on the south side of Hong Kong Island. And when I was in Stanley Market, I was talking to this guy. A lot of a lot of Chinese in Hong Kong speak English, which is one of the glories of vacationing there. And there was a, a there was a building there that looked exactly. I think it's in that bunch, and it had a square hole right in the center of the building. So it had floors above. It was all around. And I asked, "Why is there a square hole in this in the side of this apartment complex?" And he said, "Well, there's a dragon that lives in that mountain, and he needs to get out to see." And then get back into the mountain. And I looked at him like, he's joking with me. Right. But he wasn't joking. He was, he was perfectly serious. And whether, whether he saw it or not was completely irrelevant. It was a system of belief that, that he had been raised in and believed his entire life. And I wasn't about to make fun of him. No. For, for, for something that's completely outside of his control. But that, that really goes to show there's an entire system. Um, of uh, of culture uh, that we are completely unfamiliar with, and that affected the filming on several different levels, not just in language. Oh yeah, yeah. It sounds like they had a lot of problems getting this shot, and it sounds like they had some pretty uh, let's say culturally insensitive people that were working on the crew. Yeah. <laughs> Klaus admitted to including that, including Klaus himself. Yeah, including Klaus yeah. himself. Yeah, which I I take his. The two books that he he wrote on the making of Enter the Dragon and the, the biography of Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, I think there's a certain amount of that you have to take with a grain of salt. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, but I I I do like how he admitted to that, and he admitted to to it being an imperfect shoot. Yeah, and I mean, at one point, I think he said like "goddamn Chinese" or something, and just really upset the apple cart. I was like, okay, yeah, you, you kind That's of what deserve you that. Yeah, exactly. William and should then, uh, kick your ass. Go ahead. I think it was uh, him that also kind of fanned the fires of that whole story of Bob Wall trying to kill Bruce Lee. And then Bob Wall's just like, I don't know what he was doing with that. I read an interview with Wall and he was just like, no, we got along absolutely fine. You know, we were in a couple movies together and everything was good. We knew how to shoot. I mean, Bruce does cut his hand later on, but it's not because of uh, Wall trying to murder him. Yeah. You know, that is the only instance uh, during, of anything that I could find that Klaus's point of view. That I can't find anything else that collaborates that. Everyone else, uh, including Paul Heller and Fred Weintraub, said that was not the case. That he cut his finger and it was bad and he had, we couldn't work for two days. But Bruce didn't take it personally. The entire background to that of, uh, of uh, the other uh, Chinese stuntmen getting behind Bruce and saying, well, you've got to level with Bob. You've got to take him out because it's a... It's an insult to your honor. As if Bruce Lee would let a, a, a pan of stuntmen influence the way that he thought and acted. That's exactly. absurd. 
Yeah, almost as absurd as um, just some sort of random stuntman that may or may not have killed his wife um, trying to fight Bruce Lee in a parking lot. Right. Right. Paul Heller, by the way, um, also a producer on With Nell and I and My Left Foot. Yeah, he just passed away last year. Did he? Yeah. He passed away, and I can't remember who else. Was it Saxon that passed away in 2020? Yeah. 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 It was a bad year for... uh, Enter the Dragon alums. Apparently there was an actual hole in this boat, so it you can see it really start to take on water and sink. Oh, in the small one? Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I've always wondered that. He's completely after right now. <laughs> well, and when the big junk is coming out of the harbor, there's a there's a bilge pump. You can see it go out the side of it, and it is a lot of water going out that bilge pump. Oh it's yeah. Coming out of, I don't even know if this is the same boat, but it was off that side of the boat. And I just remember thinking, Oh my goodness, they're not going to go very far. <laughs> okay. So the strongman Bolo Young, the Chinese Hercules is right here on the shore. We're going to be fighting him later in him. And Bolo had a, had a black belt in Tai Chi and he was most famously in blood sport with yeah. uh, our favorite, our favorite flying Dutchman, Jean-Claude Van Damme. He has had such a career, Bolo. I mean, he was making movies, I think, 10, well, no, not 10 years before this. This was right around the time that he started, but he was definitely starting in the early 70s. He was everywhere and has carried on. I want to say the last movie I saw him credited with was 2017. So maybe he started to slow down a little bit. Well, he's getting up there. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but that's impressive to last that long. Oh, yeah. And the last movie he was credited with was called Bolo. So I'm very curious to see it, if it's kind of like a JCVD for Bolo Young or not. <laughs> I hope it's a documentary. Oh, that'd be awesome. Because Bolo, the true story. The cover art is pretty great. He's got some good funky uh, facial hair going on, too. So there you go. You can start to see the lines for the tennis courts over here on the left-hand side. And up here, too. I know he made a reference, Klaus made a reference in his book about uh, painting the grass green at one point, just to make sure that it looked more green, because this is pretty brown grass that everybody's on. Well, if you're practicing... Kung Fu on it for eight hours a day. I would imagine that it would be. Yeah. No sprinkler system set up in there. Look at this pullback shot through the window, which is we go the opposite way at the end of the film when Bruce shows up for the, for the end freeze. And this actress, um, I can't remember. How Who plays uh, Anna Capri? Thank you. Apparently she got in with um, some sort of, big shot while they were in uh, Hong Kong and she stayed behind because <laughs> she was having a good time with whoever it was that picked her up. Um, some sort of like a uh, rich guy. And it's like, okay, good. Good for you. Oh, I believe that I, my first trip to Hong Kong, I did not want to leave. That's for sure. She was also in darker than Amber as well. The uh, Klaus film. So he just carried her uh, on over. Now, this uh, set was famously extraordinarily hot. Um, Gilbert Hubbs talked about how the all of the lights were were not directional; they were they were exposed orbs, 
And that was just how the, the Chinese film industry was. And so they had to string, string them all. And then, of course, they had to put them above the bird cages, which was actually Klaus's idea of why don't we have bird cages, not knowing that the lights wouldn't be directional. Right. So the birds were getting all of this heat and they were starting to pass out and die. And so then in between takes, it had to take all the bird cages down, take them all outside so the birds can breathe and come back. I can't even imagine <laughs> how long it took to shoot this scene because of Klaus saying, hey, you know what would be good in this scene? Bird cages. Right. And then this chick from Austin Powers, she shows up out of the middle of nowhere. <laughs> One of the fembots. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they would have um, sumo wrestlers. It seems like a weird mix of cultural stuff because, like, everything else is very Chinese. You got the Chinese acrobats, you got the Chinese dragons, you got the food dogs everywhere. And then we've got two sumo wrestlers in the middle of it. And it's like, okay, sure. Well, Lee was certainly proud of the way that he can incorporate different cultural aspects of it. And he was very involved in the production of this. Of course, he, he organized Concord Productions with uh, Raymond Child so that they could make this movie so he could get a producer credit on it, uh, at least in, in China. And so I don't know where the sumo wrestlers came from. Um, but obviously, in a lot of his films, there's a lot of Japanese uh, integration, the sword fight in, uh, in Fists of Fury for example. Right. And he, well, he famously loved Japanese food. Yeah. That it took me forever to realize that, um, Fist of Fury has that Chinese versus Japanese thing. I was rewatching it the other day with, uh, I watched it subtitled and you can really pick up on the Chinese versus Japanese in that version. But then when you watch it dubbed, you don't get it nearly as much. So, and that's the way that I grew up watching all of this stuff was dubbed. And I watched it dubbed basically just so I could hear the, you killed my teacher. Why, 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 why part. (laughs) (laughs) I also watched way of the dragon dubbed uh, just because of those incredible um, voice actors that they have for like the, the bad guys, the Wolfman Jack guy and the African American gentleman, or I suppose Italian uh, African Italian gentleman, the black guy. <laughs> yeah. That's Very, that's how they accredited people in Hollywood back then. Black guy. Yeah. No, the subs are famous, and I believe that Bruce Lee had the same person overdub him in all of his films. Yeah. Was he? Did he dub himself? In English, he did. Um, he did his own English lines. But in the the early versions of the Big Boss, um, he was dubbed in English by someone else. Okay. Then in Way of the Dragon and Enter the Dragon, he 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 dubbed himself in Chinese. But I had someone tell me that he didn't do his own screeches, though, and I find that hard to believe. Yeah, that seems very weird. I thought that was like his trademark. Yeah. And in an acting style that's very specific to this film, as if you look at his other films, um, his fighting style and his acting style are, are, are very different. And oh, yeah. a lot of people think that he's uh, a monotonous actor and he's really not. He's very, very capable of handling uh, different types of, of emotions and roles. Oh yeah. He's super charismatic and just, yeah, especially that sequence in um, Fist of Fury where he's going around, 
and, and I keep screwing up. Yeah, Fist of Fury is the one, the Japanese versus Chinese one. The um, When he goes around and is like the telephone repairman and, <laughs> and just playing all the, the different parts, like trying to get more information about the Japanese. I mean, he's doing a great job, especially um, I loved him as that telephone repairman. Yeah, with the big thick glasses. Exactly. Which is a Chinese stereotype of a, of a Japanese person. Right. Yeah. And um, it was the best of both worlds for Hollywood, if you think about it. He, he spoke two languages fluently. Um, even though he has a Chinese accent, it does not get in the way of his fluency in English at all. No, no. Um, he was a, a martial artist strictly because that was uh, his interest. But he had been a, a child actor. So he, he was very professional. He hit his marks. Uh, he knew his lines. And he was very capable of taking direction, even from Robert Klaus. So uh, in terms of someone who could work on both sides of the Pacific and be successful, it, you know, he was a golden ticket. When I talked about how these guys picked up and moved on to work on things like Black Belt Jones, I want to say a lot of the same crew was behind the big brawl, also known as Battle Creek Brawl, um, which tried to do the same thing for Jackie Chan that they did for Bruce Lee, but unfortunately it was an unmitigated disaster. Yeah, I saw the documentary that I think is still on Netflix called Iron Fists and Kung Fu Kicks, and they talked about how there was a deliberate push, obviously the black, the Bruce-ploitation that went on in the, in the 10 years after his death. Jackie Chan was just so talented, they just tried to push him in that direction to make him this this huge dramatic act acting star. And it just did not work. Mm -mm. No, between that and the protector, I mean, it really wasn't until rumble in the Bronx until he finally managed to break through. Yeah, rumble in the Bronx was a huge deal. Okay. Talk about the fist now. And, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that he brought the poster of the black power fist and uh, over on the other wall, there's Jimi Hendrix and they actually talk about that in the script that he decorates his room with all of these symbols and things to just be like, you know, very proud black man. I was pretty happy about that, but it is kind of strange where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm bringing all these posters just for this weekend karate tournament. <laughs> and maybe in that airline bag, that's where those big headphones were. Right. That quite possibly I would go with that. Meanwhile, um, Lee has a, um, a bonsai tree. And uh -huh. a uh, looks like an uh, Ishiyoko behind him, like the the famous Japanese um, artist who did the staircases on the sides of mountains with fog and mist and everything, and a typewriter. I mean, he was writing something at a desk with a typewriter on it. And we should remember, of course, that Bruce Lee was also a screenwriter. He wrote Way of the Dragon. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen more of the films that he was going to write and direct, because I, I think Way of the Dragon is probably my favorite out of the whole bunch. Uh, man, that's that's a really tough decision. I'm going to have to say wait, it's a tie between Way of the Dragon and Enter the Dragon. I think Way of the Dragon is is very, very good for uh, a first attempt at directing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen what he was going to do next. Now, we notice, of course, that Roper that had the 17 suitcases, he's got practically nothing in right. his room. <laughs> Nothing but suitcases. Yes, they're all stacked in the corner. So, this is Chinese contact, Maoling. Here they're discussing the plan. 
it feels like there was a cut there. Like I know in the um, the parody film, they go around and show all of these microphones that are around, and each one just keeps getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> but it feels like it's not safe to talk here. Was like the hand signal that she gave, and but here they're talking pretty freely. This this is amazing. Oh yeah, uh, just what an athlete he was. And absolutely ripped. Just that he can hold his leg up like that for so long. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he did that in between takes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Bob Wall, uh, black belt in American Tang Soo Do. He was actually trained by Chuck Norris. He also has black belts in Chungkuk Do, Taekwondo, Shorin Ryu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and Judo. Apparently, he had a big beef against Steven Seagal, who was uh, talking a lot of smack about Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee. And Wall's just like, you don't talk about these guys like that. Well, that goes back to the animosity between Steven Seagal and pretty much everyone else in the martial arts community. <laughs> everyone else in the world. In the world. Right? <laughs> you did one good movie 30 years ago. Just yeah. face it. <laughs> that little scene of the guy coming over and like, you're not wearing the, the, the right stuff. Apparently they just use that as cover. Cause Bruce Lee's like, no, I don't want to wear one of these geese. No yellow gi for me. Thank you. Well, and I, I couldn't separate why they were wearing yellow because there's no, there's no yellow belt. The belts are white, green, purple, brown, and then black. And there's 10 degrees or a, a Dan in each belt. So I was trying to find out, I was trying to think what would be the distinguishing characteristic between the white and the yellow. I guess the yellow are, are participating in the tournaments and the white are the students at the, at Hans Island. That sounds right. Yeah. And I love this throne that she can has. Yeah. So elaborate, all those dragons all over the place. And the, the doctor, no tunic and yeah. the, it even has the hand. <laughs> So good. And the grapes, as if he's like Nero and he has these girls bringing him grapes to feast upon. I love watching the guys in the background during some of these fights. There's, I'm trying to remember, there's one fight where there's, we're going to see a guy who is just smiling as big as he possibly can. And it's supposed to be a very serious scene, but he is just loving being on set. <laughs> <laughs> oh, point him out. I like to see it. Yeah. This guy this with the Hitler stash. Yeah. <laughs> it's like straight out of, uh, what was that movie? Raw Force, where the main guy had the crazy glasses and Hitler stash. Raw Force. I'm gonna have to yeah. write that down. Uh, it's it's a pretty wacky movie. I want to say there's some uh, some zombies in there and some other good things. It's it's wild. I'm making a list. It was really nice going back and rewatching all these Bruce Lee films to see a lot of the familiar faces you know we talked about samo earlier um i kept seeing lam ching ying show up and stuff which was fantastic um i know that jackie was in these but he was mostly doing like stunt doubling so one of the japanese guys that uh bruce lee kicks through a wall is jackie doing that stunt yeah he's he's one of the guys in white and this scene you, you never see him and then he's in he's in the tunnel fight 
uh, in the cave where supposedly Bruce Lee actually broke his neck on one of the kicks, Mm. which they didn't find out until uh, after the shooting was, was over. Jeez. As far as their, their faces are concerned, I, after seeing this three or four times, I began to think that uh, it's not Klaus because Klaus really didn't have that much input in casting uh, beyond the, the primary characters. It's really Raymond Chow who cast a lot of these people. Right. And it reminds me of those Sergei Leone movies where you just had these very distinctive faces. And it really fights against this racist notion that we have in the West of, uh, well, you know, all Chinese look alike or really anyone who's not like in that ethnic group, they all look alike. Right. If you if you look in the background of Enter the Dragon or any other Asian movie for that matter, you just see these very distinctive faces and these these pool of individuals that fights against that idea. I really appreciate the makeup and scenes like this where he's just getting more and more beat up. Yeah, that that's a nasty looking bruise. Mm-hmm. And a good one, two, three setup here. Yeah. And Jim Kelly actually uh, said later that Bruce let him have uh, input uh, into his fight scenes uh, because Bruce was interested in what um, each skilled artist could bring to their, uh, as their contribution into the fight. And that goes right in with his theory of you have to bring something from the past, something from the presence and make it something that's totally yours that he writes in his book, be water. I always love when he talked about being water. Yeah. Be water, my friend. Yeah. I was rewatching one of those interviews with him where he was giving that little speech. It was just like, Oh, that's so nice. I always love to listen to him talk. I think that's well. he has a cadence in his voice. It's very specific in the way that he spoke. It's almost like um, you come to predict it like you would predict John Lennon's sort of Liverpudlian cadence mm-hmm. or Yoda. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Lee is very Yoda at times. I know she had trouble with nudity and I was like, really? You have trouble with nudity? All right. I, it doesn't look like you do. Yeah. Well, there are some people that were upset that there was nudity in the, the scene in was it Way of the Dragon. Right. Of There was a nude woman in a, in a scene with Bruce and there were some, some Chinese who got upset with it. But this was the 70s. Nudity was, was in vogue. And there, was, there wasn't a, a stigma against it like there is now. It was just felt like that's where movies were going. That's where a film as an art was going was it was getting more and more nude. It wasn't until you had that sort of conservative reaction in the 80s where they started to um, tone it down quite a bit, particularly among the higher dollar productions. Exactly, yeah. And then you started getting the uh, Cinemax movies, the erotic thrillers, things that wouldn't necessarily play um, in theaters. They would be more you know, straight to DVD, straight to VHS, I should say. Yeah, the soft core right. Cinemax mm-hmm. type stuff. Which is an art all by itself. Yeah. Apparently they had a lot of trouble getting women that would be naked. And I want to say a lot of the uh, the women that are, uh, like in that scene with Jim Kelly, and then later on when Kelly's getting beat up, that they were prostitutes that they had hired. 
yeah, apparently there's a stigmatism of, of actresses in Asia playing prostitutes. They, nobody would do it. So you had to hire prostitutes to play prostitutes. And Klaus said that it had a dramatic impact on the budget because they had to pay the prostitutes basically to not work. So he had to pay them more than, than what they would uh, earn as prostitutes. Right. And they were the highest paid people on sets some days. Yeah, really kind of upsetting to the stunt players that were making just a couple bucks a day. Right. Uh, this guy might be up for one of the worst guards ever. <laughs> I can see why these guards get murdered later on. Mr. Well, Dr. Guy. Evil, you know, sometimes we have to work late. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of overtime in being a, a guard on Hans Island. I love uh, Fistful of Yen. He just keeps going in and bumping into all these things, and the guard just never notices. And just, like, knocking over pottery like crazy. And I was waiting for the joke of, like, you know, he steps on a, a the floorboard, and there's a tiny little creak, and that's what gets the guard to notice. But, no, they just they never notice anything. Now, does he find the cobra here, or does he find the cobra in the next? That's the next time. Because yeah, that's the setup. Right. Now, this time he finds the dog. Right, the German shepherd. Right. And in uh, that fistful of chopsticks, he smacks him on the head and says, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> Losing track of my notes here. Nice use of shadows. Yeah, it is. Uh, Klaus had, I have to say that particularly after seeing Game of Death, which is also Klaus's film, um, this has more style in it. Game of Death, Oh yeah. other than the music, uh, Game of Death is a, is a travesty. <laughs> yeah, it's not good at all. I love that use of backwards to have him jump up into the tree. Yeah. Now, Game of Death is, yeah, even when I saw that as a kid, I was just like, what the heck is going on here? I mean, can't you, don't they actually like use a pasted up picture of Bruce Lee on a mirror to be like, this is his reflection? I mean, it's really bad. Yeah, it's a cardboard cutout. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so many times they put him in that yellow jumpsuit just to like cover up who's actually in the jumpsuit. I think it's him sometimes, but then they'll use doubles to try to stretch it out and make it look like it's him. Yeah. And as we said before that, you know, he never used doubles. He only used double three times in his whole career. And David Carradine, you know, famously said once that uh, Bruce Lee used doubles all the time and he didn't, he didn't do his own fights. And I don't know um, what asshole David Carradine was talking out of when he said right. stuff like that. <laughs> Everyone knew that it was a lie. Yeah. The same one that said, I got the role in Kung Fu and the guy who created it didn't. Right. I look at simple stuff like this and I'm just like, I couldn't hold my legs up like that. I no, there's no way. My whole life and I would never be able to do what he just did. And, and that's, that reminds me of, uh, you know, say Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible. Well, he's on a gurney. That's way different. Right. Bruce here is just using his physical strength. You know, he worked out three, four hours a day. Ugh. 
Well, yeah, you look at him without a shirt on, and it's just like all muscle. Him and that that shot of uh, Jim Kelly earlier after he was having sex with those ladies. It's just like, look at those abs. Look at the muscles on the sides. It's just amazing what shape these guys were in. And it's such a different shape than today. Like when you see actors that are all built up, like uh, Chris Helmsworth in the new right. Thor movie. And it's just all about size of the arms. And you look at these guys and there's just, they're so tight, you know, just like the, they, you can see that their arms are completely built, but they're not huge and muscular. They're just really well-defined. It's just bulk. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it, that doesn't indicate any type of uh, talent or skill. That means just you can lift a lot. Feels so bad for Jim Kelly in this movie. I mean, he gets accused of a crime he doesn't commit. Well, I think that says a lot about black characters, not yeah. just in the seventies, but of of all time. Exactly. You know, court martial Jackie Robinson. George Floyd. Yeah. Shit Kane came from the Peking Opera Circuit. And apparently that was a 10-year grueling experience. And if you survived the Peking Opera Circuit, then you were considered a professional actor in Asia. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, like Jackie and that whole group. Yeah, well, they came from the that. Five Lucky Stars, or I can't remember the number, but yeah, that whole group of guys... Yuan Bio and Samo and Lam Ching Ying. And Bruce Lee's father, Lee Hui yeah. Chuing. <laughs> I keep going back to the uh, the parody of this where they set it up like the dating game. <laughs> if I was an alarm clock and you wanted to wake me up, what would you say? I wouldn't say anything. I'm no dingling. <laughs> That's the Zucker Brothers, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. It. Zucker Brothers directed by Landis. Yeah. Bolo. Oh, I love Man. those faces. Yeah. Oh. He looks so happy to be murdering people. Yeah. And then when Lee um, kills um, Scarface, Bob Wall. <laughs> Bob Wall at the end, you can see how uh, the emotion that runs through his face of he takes his revenge. And he's enjoying his revenge, but he yeah. wished he wouldn't have to take it in the first place. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a range of complicated emotions that go through. It's not just a, a, a one-act pony. And it's scored brilliantly with, the, with those high winds that uh, Schifrin brings in. Or it sounds like a theremin, actually. Yeah, Schifrin really does a good job in this. I really like his work. He's just holding him. He's just cuddling him, that's all. Yeah. Oh, he cuddled him too tight, George. <laughs> just these these bodies that he just leaves in his wake is Oh my God. Yep. See that see that's Klaus and Hubs deciding, okay, we're gonna drop the camera to to show that just the brutality of what's actually going on here. Cause this is the first uh for the participants, this is their first indication that something is not right. Mm-hmm. Here he comes. Finally. Nice. I do like this idea of him having two reasons 
to be on this island. You know, and he says it right out. You know, you've offended my family and you've offended a Shaolin temple. You yes. Know, it's one thing for Han to be a disgrace to the Shaolin, but then having that added personal level of his sister, just very, very smart. I, I think that's the most famous line in this film. And we used to say that as, as kids, you know, just, you've, not knowing really where it came from, right? You have offended my, the Shaolin temple and you've offended my family. And we would repeat that <laughs> as nauseam. And when we get into play fights, not really understanding that it came from Enter the Dragon. I used to have uh, my computer set up at a, a job I worked many, many years ago that whenever there was an error, they would say that. <laughs> <laughs> So I sometimes I made errors on purpose just so I could hear that. And there is no mercy. I love how surprised he looks at just how hard he got hit. Yeah, and Robert Klaus says in his book, and Fred Heller said the same. There are a lot of people who knew Bruce Lee. They said they all say the same thing. I do not know how fast he was, but he was the fastest man I had ever seen in my life. Oh yeah. And he uses that speed to his advantage in this scene where O'Hara just can't keep up. It's not that O'Hara is, uh, is a bad fighter. It's that he just, he's just not as fast as Lee is. Oh, yeah. That was so nice, that kick to the face. Yeah, and then the backflip. Yeah. Boom. Oh, my right God. Right in the family jewels. And you didn't really see that in a lot of uh, kung fu films before Enter the Dragon. And here, uh, Lee's boxing, how he's kind of you know, floating like a butterfly, kind of like Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And there are a lot of people that said that he would watch Muhammad Ali uh, films and, and watch how Muhammad Ali would circle around um, the ring. I can't remember. Did they ever fight him and Muhammad Ali? Uh, no, they didn't. <laughs> Not even when he something. was Clash's Clay. <laughs> yeah, that would have been something. But Klaus... Oh. Klaus, oh, no, that fall. The guy behind him apparently broke his arm. Oh, man. And here comes the the bottles, which I still to this day, I cannot believe that nobody had sugar glass in Hong Kong. I know. That seems crazy. Fly some in. Yeah. I mean, or can't you, you know, figure out the formula to do it? You're right. (laughs) They're smart people. Yeah, they're very smart people, and they have some great confectioners there. I, I've had yes. many Chinese de- desserts before. Oh, the sweets there are crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love them. O'Hara's legs kick up. Oh, here comes the oh, the emotional yeah. kick the s- that we talked about before. Here, that slow mo is so well done right here. Oh. Mm-hmm. And of course, we wouldn't have this without uh, Peck and Paw. But I mean, slow mo and Peck and Paw, it's it's almost. Uh, like a parody. Even when yeah. he's doing it, you're just sort of tired of it. But Enter the Dragon, it's done to great effect. Yeah, I think once he was done with the Wild Bunch, maybe lay off the, the slow-mo as much. Well, I don't think like there's... trying to tell John Woo to lay off the slow-mo. Right. <laughs> well, I don't think... There's very few slow-mo, I think, in uh, The Killer Elite. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's almost none. But Convoy was... Almost entirely slow mo. Like, unless there was dialogue, there was slow mo. <laughs> it's been a lot of years since I've seen that movie. 
Oh yeah. That, sorry. I, I didn't say, but that was the shot where there's a guy just smiling his head off. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> well, you see everybody, all the extras behind him are turning to look at him. Right. So, you know, why does Williams take his, his belt off and open his gi? I guess just to show off that chest. Well, it's an impressive chest. I certainly understand that. Yeah. Yeah, I really, yeah. If you haven't seen Black Belt Jones, I cannot recommend that enough. And he's got this uh, all-girl army that he uses. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I love this exchange. Yeah. Well, and here Williams uh, basically sees that uh, uh, Han is the man. Right. You know, he's 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 just another man. He's another oppressor. And I think uh, the Wu Tang Clan uh, sampled this with the whole "Your style is unorthodox, but effective." <laughs> what was the song? I don't know, but. Uh, there's a YouTube channel called Nat's What I Reckon. This guy, Nat from Australia, who does cooking videos. And he ends every single video with that song. And I looked it up one time, so I was just like, what is this? So I, I kind of missed the boat on Wu-Tang. Yeah, and so did I. I, was, I think I was too old by that time. Same, yeah. Yeah. It was Beastie Boys, up, Run DMC, and after that. Yeah, I was up to Public Enemy, a little bit of NWA. But yeah, after that, I... If I had been 10 years younger, I think I'd be very into Wu-Tang, especially with the mix of the martial arts plus the rap. I think the same. Look at this. Look at that fist. My God. Oh, yeah. These kicks. I personally think that this whole idea, too, of all these cage birds is kind of speaking to the way that Han likes to control things. I never thought of that. That's that's actually pretty deep. I love this blue dragon that's on his mirror. That's nice and ornate. Oh, and this is where we find out that he's packing a punch here with that left hand. Yeah, he's talking to birds flying around. Yep. And Shi Kin was a uh, was also a, a kung fu artist. Oh yeah. Uh, but by this time, he was uh, so old that they, they had to double a lot of his work. Yeah, it was stuff like that, I'm sure. But, even you know, he gets some good shots in where you're just like, oh, that's really him doing this. Yeah, for that's a guy in his late 50s, early 60s, you know, that's yeah. pretty impressive work. Moves a lot faster than I would. And there's this whole idea, too, that they were saying that it was not uh, good to paint your face that uh, they didn't, they had to like pay these ladies extra put to put face paint on. I was like, okay. I didn't know of any sort of taboo against that in Chinese culture. Yeah. I was this, unfamiliar with that too. This is definitely a holdover from the sixties with these uh, girls all smoking pot and laughing their heads off. Well, it reminds me of that horrible scene in uh, Marlowe, which actually Bruce Lee was in, the one where oh, James yeah. Garner is playing Marlowe, where they, you know, he goes into basically in, like a hippie house and it's an LSD den. Mm -hmm. They're all zonked out of their minds. And geez, how stereotypical can you get? Right. 
the way that the lighting is here kind of reminds me of uh, Borman's Point Blank when they're having that fight behind the psychedelic screens at the jazz club. You got the one guy who's just like kind of scream singing and um, uh, you've got um, uh, Lee Marvin just kicking the shit out of a guy behind that screen. And that's pretty contemporary. What is that? 71 or 70? That's pretty recent. I think so. Yeah. So that would have been in, in memory. You see a lot of things in Enter the Dragon that are um, homages or pastiche or lifted from other films, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Klaus oh. specifically says in uh, in his book um, that the ending is not a lift from uh, The Lady from Shanghai, which yeah. I, I have to say I think is complete and utter bullshit. <laughs> I would agree with you on that. And he's like, I, have, I never saw the movie, and I still haven't seen it today. And I'm like, sure, sure. There is no way. I mean, it's not it's not a complete frame by frame rip, but the the style and the panning is exactly the same. Yeah, I love that fake hand in there. It's so nice. <laughs> and then another joke of well, yeah, that's just a memento. And here the the guillotine. So I had a birthday about three months ago, and and I hired out a theater near my house, and I said I want to watch Enter the Dragon. Oh, wow. And so about uh, 25 people showed up. And this is, of course, is during the pandemic. So everybody was masked up. Um, but the, the theater near my house is a, is a tavern. It has individual booths. So we were able to keep our social distancing uh, quite, quite well. And uh, uh, while it was playing, the cat scene comes up. There, there was a member of the audience who had actually just lost a cat. Oh, no. And had not seen Enter the Dragon. And actually thought Han was entirely so evil that he was going to actually decapitate this kitten and heads popped up out of the booth and looked at me and said, no, and they just shouted in the theater. Are you kidding me? You know what I went through this past week and you're going to do this. And oh, I, wow. I had to spoil uh, within 30 seconds of the cats. Okay. The cats, everything's going to be fine. It is. Uh, you were talking about Dr. No and that whole idea of you know, having the cat. It's very, um, what is the is it Smirsh in the yeah, yeah, Slowfeld? Yeah. I was petting the cat, yeah, stroking the cat, yeah. And none did it better than Donald Pleasance. Like the no. more Donald Pleasance got uh, agitated, the his hand would like jerk up and down the cat with more uh, uh, more anger and irritation. I think Klaus was saying too that whole case that held the other hands was uh, his wife helped design that, and really she she worked better with some of the Chinese crew than even he did. Well, everyone involved in the production talked about how just amazingly dedicated and hardworking the uh, Chinese crew was, mm-hmm. and if if they had a trade down, then they had that trade down. And if you look at these sets, my goodness! Oh yeah. And this was in like a former tile factory that was not built as a as a sound studio that Chow had taken over. It's very impressive. Yeah, I was just talking to someone the other day about um, they were asking me about um, seeing a giallo in the original Italian. And I said, well, actually, probably isn't the original Italian just because everything was recorded to MOS. And people right. would dub like crazy. And I was talking about how 
Hong Kong was very much the same because because of shooting in abandoned tile factories where things probably aren't soundproofed. I know a lot of the the studios in Hong Kong are under the path of uh, the airport or the airlines, so you get super noisy. Well, Kai Tech was certainly. Uh, you were in the flight plan. The first time I flew into Hong Kong, I, I landed at Kai Tech, the same airport that's in the beginning of Enter the Dragon. And that that was crazy. I looked out the window upon landing, and you, you, it just seemed like it was only a few dozen feet. People were right. on their rooftops, like hanging clothespins on lines, and almost hitting TV aerials. And oh. I, it was it was insane. And when when we uh, we we landed, it was it was a really hard drop because they clear the buildings, and they got to come down really fast to the runway because they're literally flying over a city. Oh my God. And then uh, a few days later when we took off, we we took off over water and then they bank really hard uh, to go up Hong Kong uh, Harbor. And so you're, you're taking this really steep bank because they can't clear the mountain that's, that's on the mainland right in front of them. And when you're on star ferry, um, which is uh, in between Hong Kong and Kowloon, uh, if you're on the, the double deck, when those airplanes come over, you can see people in the windows on the wow. airplanes and you can read the tail numbers. Oh, look, that's 6JK9er. That's, you know, but uh, I think the next time I flew into Hong Kong, we flew into Lantau, which is 26 miles to the west. And they had, they had closed Kai Tech. And then, and of course, the real estate there just became the most prized real estate in all of Hong Kong. Oh, but, sure. But uh, uh, Lantau is the, one of the greatest airports in the world. Everything's in seven languages. Everything is extremely easy to move around. And there's a bullet train that takes you uh, from uh, Lantau directly into Kowloon and a freeway that takes you into downtown Hong Kong, right onto the island. It goes under the harbor. Wow. And within a span of like 20 minutes, whereas 20 minutes before out of Kai Tech, you could not get across Hong Kong in 20 minutes in a cab right. from Kai Tech, much less to an airport that was 26 miles away. Here's the sad. Oh yeah, you know, again, almost like an Austin Powers, Doctor Evil type of moment. But you wouldn't put this past. Uh, I mean, Blowfield actually does this in a James Bond film. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's Thunderball with the with the uh, the bridge that lets go and the person that falls into the piranhas. I was going to say, I'm surprised there aren't piranhas in that water. And the spikes that ring the pool are kind of why in case he wakes up and tries to get out. Right. I mean, it seems it's not exactly a biblical type of thing, but it seems very Jesus-y the way that he was hanging there. And then the kind of ring of ring of thorns around the pool, let's say. Uh, I was thinking like a, like a, a St. Sebastian. There you go. Yeah. He was chained up and shot with arrows. Yeah. These guys just have no fucks left to give. Yeah, very cold, very hard. Just like their boss. Mm-hmm. John Saxon starting a, a long string of uh, Western actors that would make a living in Hong Kong. Peter Cushing, Stuart Whitman, and George Lazenby famously was supposed to meet with, uh, with Bruce Lee, I think, the night that he died. Oh, wow. About a role in the game of death, which eventually went to... Uh, I think it was Gig Young. I think you're right, yeah. And then Lazenby. I mean, Lazenby was really good at martial arts. So you can see him in, uh, was it Man from Hong Kong against, uh, is it Jimmy Wang Yu? And he does a really good job in that movie. So you're just completely by that those two can go up against each other. 
And that's another one where you get like five minutes of Sammo at the beginning and you're just like, is that Sam? Yep, it is. Okay. <laughs> so here's the the famous story of uh, they took five takes and in order to get the Cobra to fan out its hood, uh, Lee had to, to hit the Cobra on the nose. He had to wrap it. And by the fifth take, that Cobra wasn't going to take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so before Lee could actually hit it, it bit him. Uh, however, uh, because he had shot his venom out on the four previous takes, he had none left. Right. And uh, uh, Lee would just sort of like brushed it. I can imagine seeing somebody on set, seeing Bruce Lee get bit, bitten by a cobra and, and then just like shake it off. Yep. <laughs> this guy is, you know, he'll never die. <laughs> Except if you give him an aspirin, then that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Honey badger don't give a shit. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> it's his kryptonite. Aspirin is his kryptonite. That's unfortunate. Oh yeah, completely unfortunate. That this whole the, what the movie opened thirty days after he passed away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was poised for so much more. Well, Warner Brothers apparently had a contract on the table that he was considering that was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a movie for five movies. And that yeah. was just with Warner Brothers. And. And there is the famous story of, um, of, I think it was Paul Heller. Uh, Ted Ashby was running Warner Brothers, sent Paul Heller out to close a deal with Raymond Chow because Lee was under contract with, with Raymond Chow. And so they, he went out there for about a week or two weeks to try to close this deal and was getting nowhere because Raymond Chow didn't, uh, didn't want him to, to go to Hollywood. And they famously had a dinner and Paul Heller said, well, I'm leaving tomorrow. And Lee was like, why are you leaving tomorrow? And he said, well, it's very clear that Raymond doesn't want to want to do, do a deal. He thinks that he's going to lose you to us. And so, you know, I'm very sorry, but you're going to miss your, your stardom in the West. And that's when Bruce Lee basically told Raymond Chow, make the deal. Right. I'm not giving you a choice. And then they made the deal and entered the dragon went into production within a couple of months. And Raymond Chow was, if memory serves, he was pretty much an upstart. I mean, it was the whole him forming, uh, was it Golden Star? Golden uh, Harvest. Golden Harvest, thank you. Yeah. Versus the uh, the Shaw brothers who were like the owners of the Chinese film industry at the time. Yeah, it was something crazy, like 70 or 80% of all the movies um, made in China the previous 30 years was, yeah. was made out of the Shaw brothers studio. And they had a factory going on that rivaled the golden age of Hollywood. Okay, yeah. I was I was like, why did I say Golden Star? And I guess it's because of the Fortune Star logo that comes up on these uh, discs, which takes so long to get, like, their logo plays forever on these Criterion discs. It's one of the longest logos I've ever seen. It's kind of like the, the Toho logo. Yeah. That goes on for like a minute. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It's longer than the Godzilla movie you're about to watch. Right, exactly. <laughs> Red alert. Red alert. And here comes, uh, I think it's Heller is going to be making a cameo here, getting the, uh, yep, there we go. Is, is that Heller? Yeah. And he oh, I didn't that, know that. He did this in the war. That was his job. Uh, I don't know if he meant World War II or Korea or what, but he said that he actually had that job when he was in the army. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. The, the audio commentary for this on the Warner brothers disc is so strange because they keep like calling in 
Michael Allen, the screenwriter, so you hear him on the phone at times. <laughs> it's like, what is going on? I only got halfway through that commentary. Um, I listened to it 20 years ago. I didn't remember any of it, but I, I never got to this part. It um, it gets very redundant. Like, my wife was going crazy listening to it this morning. She's like, is everything amazing? And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, listen to him. Everything is amazing. And then, sure <laughs> enough, be like, oh, look at Bruce here. He's amazing. Look at this. Oh, that's amazing. And it's like, okay. So it's a very amazing commentary. Well, it's a pretty amazing movie. I remember reading in one one of the books that you sent me uh, that Enter the Dragon was made for under a million dollars. And they had a, a conference at Warner Brothers where they were arguing and arguing over whether or not he could hold his own film. And somebody in the table was like, we spend more on a TV pilot yeah. than we do on, on the production of this film. And it went on to make, uh, I think, one number I saw was it went on to make uh, $90 million dollars. In in the like the ten years after it came out, wow. and since then it's topped like three hundred and fifty million dollars, and it's one of the most profitable movies ever made, and definitely um, probably in the top five most profitable Warner Brother movies. So you look at okay, you see these blocks here where he blocks and he hits at the same time. Yeah. So I watched this last weekend at a friend's house in California, and he was a master in Aikido, um, and he said that this was something that he really. Uh, found surprising in, in Bruce Lee when he was coming up and he was learning martial arts was the block and the hit at the same time was something specific in Jeet Kune Do. He was taking the the hit from Kung Fu and the block from karate, and he was doing it at the same time. Wow. And if you knew anything about martial arts and you, and you, you saw what he was doing, it was really like a wake-up call of, wow, this is changing. This is changing dramatically. And that's something that I would not have a clue about. I love how he goes through these different weapons. Like he's got the one long stick. Now he goes down, gets the two sticks. Pretty yeah. soon he's going to get the um, nunchucks. That hold is amazing. Oh, I love just, it. Just like the commentary. <laughs> <laughs> and Klaus said that these bars are actually not bars of metal. They're actually wood. That was chiseled and sanded down and then painted black. And they had to be careful when they were holding on to it not to, to snap the wood. They said that the walls were made out of just like, what, hay and mud? And that the walls would start to dry out and crack after a couple of days of being under the hot lights? Yeah. And then they had to constantly paint them to keep them yeah. in the same color scheme? Oh, thanks. You just gave me a new weapon. Thank you very much. The nunchaku. And of course, this had to be cut when they showed it in the UK, because for whatever reason, the UK just will not allow nunchucks on screen. Yeah, they're banned in, in California. Uh, I don't know if they're banned in other states. I remember growing up that nunchucks were a big deal. Nunchucks and uh, Chinese throwing stars. <laughs> right. Especially you could order those from the back of uh, magazines. It's like, okay, thanks. We had such a weird relationship with things from the Orient. Yeah, they were always in the back of uh, Soldier of Fortune magazine. Mm -hmm. 1999 shipped to you. Yeah, and this reminds me of, uh, of uh, Qui-Gon in The Phantom Menace just waiting for the door to open so he can fight uh, Darth mm -hmm. Maul. Good pull. And then the red, the red silk shirt. 
that Han's wearing. Oh, Braithwaite, I'm so glad that you're finally back. Yeah, he woke up. <laughs> He's having tea from a tea bag? I can see the little label from the tea bag. That's that, very British. Yeah, I was just about to say the same thing. I haven't noticed that before. That seems really antithetical. No self-respecting Brit would ever use a tea bag. Yeah, nor any sort of good Chinese would either. Yeah, very true. And the voice actor who dubbed Shikan is played by is the same guy who played Master Po in Kung Fu. Didn't yeah. you say that? You said that. I did. Yeah. That was one of my notes. And yet the tournament is still going on. It's interesting. I just rewatched or watched that um new Mortal Kombat film. And I mean Mortal Kombat has everything to answer to for uh, Enter the Dragon. This whole idea of these different martial artists getting together and having this tournament in a remote location. Well, I, I can't tell you how many TV shows I've seen where there's a tournament somewhere, usually on an island, and we're going to go discover something there. Raymond Chow hired Andre Morgan, who was an American student of the Chinese studies. And Andre Morgan eventually became a producer and executive at Golden Harvest. And together they did The Boys of Company C, Cannonball Run, 1 and 2, The High Road to China, Lassiter, and of course, unfortunately, Game of Death. Yeah, hired him because he knew English uh, fluently, I think, right? Could speak that's right. both English and Chinese. Yeah, that's right. Cantonese. Cantonese, yeah. That was a big shocker to me. I didn't I didn't know that there was a difference until I, I had gone to Beijing and we we had a um, we had a I guess a guide is what you could saw someone who made sure that we never got lost when we uh, through our travels. Mm -hmm. Not a minder. The minder was separate. <laughs> no, that there was a minder there. Uh, but he he told us like I'm you know when we when we leave Chengdu and you go to Hong Kong I'm going back to Beijing I'm not going with you. And he said because I I have no idea what they're going to say. I yeah can't, I can't understand what they say. No, I I was what was I I was watching something recently and it was in Cantonese and they were just counting from one to ten and I was like. Okay, I recognize a couple numbers, but it's so different from Mandarin. Yeah, air, my, bow, yeah. See, Bolo has like scars on his fists. Yeah. From punching. He's got a bruise on his face. <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of movies of this era is you 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 have this joke of, you know, fire the continuity girl. But you don't have that problem in Enter the Dragon. Mm -mm. No, they do a really good job with that. Oh my God, that was a tall kick. Yeah, it was from laying down. His leg has to be very long. <laughs> and the way that it was edited, you totally bought it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can actually buy that John Saxon can kick uh, Bolo Young's butt. It's not easy, but he manages to do it. 
another another nad kick there. Oh, Roper going low. It's the only thing that can bring down the Chinese Hercules. <laughs> Look at Bolo's performance there. Is he just? I mean, God, that's amazing. Yeah. Here, Han just deciding. Rules of the tournament are, are over. Thank you. Look at this tracking shot that pulls to the right. Yeah. Oh, look at the guy in the back laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he was very happy to see that guy go down. It's probably so like here, his least favorite coworker. Here comes another one that uh, my friend uh, Philip told me about was uh, Lee's triple kick. Mm. was actually pretty rare. You didn't see it in any sport. Um, and in Kung Fu, it was really rare. But in Jeet Kune Do, it was something that, that he taught. I think that it's coming up. Look at those sweeping kicks. Yeah. Love it. There was, there was a two-for-one deal there. Yeah. Of course, we should mention the music. Lalo Shafirin was also a martial arts student, although he was not a student of Bruce Lee, but he had a gym in his Beverly Hills home. And he did uh, Cool Hand Luke, Bullet, Hell in the Pacific, Kelly's Heroes, The Beguiled, THX 1138, and famously Dirty Harry, which really, Dirty Harry is probably the movie that sent him to superstardom as far as being a composer. Is he still around? Because I know I just saw him in a recent documentary, but I don't know how long it took to make the doc. Yeah, he was born in 1932 in Buenos Aires, and he's still alive. Wow. Way to go, Lalo. Some of his films in the 80s just have direct lifts off of his previous work. It was like he was rushed in a schedule or something. But Yeah. I've noticed that with a lot of composers where it's like, oh, you're not really breaking too much new ground here, but... Some of them were like, oh, yeah, I had 45 days to score this whole thing. Right. I yeah. had eight days to score this. Oh, okay. Then I forgive you. So here in a fight scene like this, I always look for what I call the Spartacus effect, which is when you look in the background, there's people just not really fight fighting. Mm -hmm. They're going through like very fake motions. But I don't see that here. Like all the stuntmen in the background here are actually throwing kicks and punches. Right. And a lot of these guys uh, – in at least Klaus had said were um, uh, members of triads. Yeah. Rival gangs too. If memory serves that they were uh, wanted to fight each other <laughs> very much. <laughs> yeah. Here comes the famous line. If I remember correctly, or is it inside? I think it's inside. It's inside. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Nice. That nice yeah. uh, start with that massive close up and then jump back. And it catches them in the face. The other thing, too, is that these guys aren't waiting around to, you know, fight each other. That's like the, uh, in The Last Jedi, when they're in that th throne room scene, I think it is. Was it The Last Jedi? Or I can't remember which one it was. Where, where, uh, well, in the throne room, yeah, in The Last yeah. Jedi. Yeah. And you just see all those guys, like, waiting their turn before they go and attack. And it's like, oh, come on. It's like they just have nothing to do. They're just waiting. And it's like, no, that's not really how fights would work. There's lots of pauses in that fight. I, I yeah. was really not. I love that fight. It's probably my favorite uh, Jedi fight, actually. 
but that's very frustrating when someone, uh, I think my son actually pointed that out to me in a, in a YouTube video and it had circles and arrows. That was really frustrating to see. I said, the next time you have something like that, don't show me. I don't want to know. Right. Right. Here it is. Yeah, I know. Nice. I noticed that too in um, uh, the Harley Quinn movie when they're having the big fight towards the end. There's a lot of stuntmen just kind of like uh, two, three, four. Okay, and now it's my turn to fight. It's like, oh, yeah, they're counting the beats. Yeah, I really kind of wish that Hand had grabbed that big bird claw that he's got in the. <laughs> I think that would have been pretty cool instead of the Wolverine glove. Yeah, the footwork. Oh my god, what a what a kick to the face there. Yeah. And this Museum of Weaponry reminds me again of another Bond film. I think it's The Living Daylights where Joe Don Baker has all of these uh, statues of himself and in as historical figures like Napoleon and so forth. Oh, wow. And then he's got drawers of weapons everywhere. He's not playing Felix Leiter in that one, is he? No, no, he plays um he plays a a an American officer that got kicked out of the military and set up his own um illegal arms trade in North Africa mm. and was and was uh dealing with the Russians. And his Russian partner had been exposed and uh had had left through to West Germany. Bond had got him out unwittingly helping this uh, American arms dealer. Ah. And that, and Bond finds out what's going on halfway through the movie and then turns around and tries to, to stop the man that he helped escape. I don't think I've seen that one since I saw it at the theater. Uh, I, it's give it I another love go. that kick. That, that kick great. is so great. I don't know if that was actually an actor or what, but they just have a shape on the screen in the foreground and he kicks it out of the way. It's so good. Yeah, in the back, the back quake. Now, this is awesome here. I mean, that's a movie poster. Oh, yeah. With the wheel of life behind him. Yeah, so good. Birth or origin or beginning or. Yeah, this room of weapons reminds me of Batman 89 with uh, Bruce, uh, Bruce Wayne's uh, whole collection that he has. What kind of rich weirdo lives here? Right. Okay, now we we enter the Hall of Mirrors. And I don't know how many times I've seen this and was looking for the camera. Um if you if you look at the what's the video? The Flock of Seagulls, Iran. Oh, Iran, yeah. Yeah. And um you can see the camera in the mirror pass by uh, as the camera turns around. And in Enter the Dragon, I don't think that I've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. And um Klaus said that they built a a, a housing for the camera that was covered in mirrors and only the lens was exposed. Wow. Which, which had to be uh, really difficult to shoot all these sequences, considering that the only person who knew what the hell was going on uh, was the focus puller. Right. You know, and even Gil Hubs had to, had to rely on, well, unless of course Klaus or Hubs was looking through the camera themselves. You know, if you're, if you're gifted and skilled that way, like Steven Soderbergh famously shoots a lot of his own stuff. Um, great. But if you're not, look how it's Han's face is contorted here, sort of emphasizing yeah. his evil nature. I have to say all these 
scratches on Bruce Lee look really good. Well, and and we forget, you know, these are the days before Polaroids. Right. You know, and when Polaroid came out, I don't think anybody used Polaroids more than Hollywood. But for continuity, that was fantastic. But Oh, yeah. But back then, you, you had to know exactly where things were. Because this, this fight took two weeks to shoot, according to Klaus. And it, but also, like Klaus also said, after they were done, uh, Bruce Lee uh, hired his own camera crew and went in and shot more footage in there for, for some other project. Right. And no one's ever found that footage. No one knows where that footage is. or if, I, I don't believe that for anything. Well, what did he also – he said that somebody was on set and shot five hours worth of footage, behind-the-scene footage, to be cut down to a 10-minute uh, making of and that they threw the footage away after they were done with it? Yeah, and I, I saw that in another source from oh. Warner Brothers. Yeah, so all that B-roll stuff was gone. Mm. And that, that was just before be he cold. passed away. Yeah, it would be. Absolutely. So uh, consequently, every time we see um, a documentary about Enter the Dragon, it's all the same stuff over and over. Exactly. See, this is right out of the lady from Shanghai. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Now, this scene has the famous fall track that's used twice, which annoys the living hell out of me. And Paul Heller bragged about the um, the stunt the sound dubs. effects. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, those the fall noises kill me every time I hear them because they remind me of uh, the old Warner Brother cartoons of uh, the, the Pink Panther. And whenever anybody would fall in there, you would have the same <clears throat> kind of noise. <laughs> <laughs> and so it just it just makes the movie kind of cartoonish whenever anybody falls and they play that sound. But yeah, he was very proud of all the hit noises, and I was like, okay, I can I can handle the hit noises, but the fall noises, oh, yeah. I I just thought you know, gaffing's not that much, just or right. the, the foley, the foley is really cheap. I really like how he disappeared from that first or second mirror when he smashed it. Good thing his teacher was telling them all about the uh, illusions that people hide behind. Yeah. And here, that that was amazing change in composure when he realizes what he had done. Because mm-hmm. when he initially kicked him, he didn't realize that it was going to kill him. So his composure changes when he sees, oh my goodness, it's over. All right, I'm trying to read meaning into the revolution. Oh, you've gone way past where I'm at. That's funny. He's still alive. Now he's dead for where I'm at. Oh, we're a few seconds off. Yeah, I will hit fast forward a little bit. Now I've got Roper in the chair. Catch up. There we go. I'm now with you. Here they are toying with one of the students. (laughs) It's, it's, that's horrible. Yeah, it kind of is. That guy really, you know, it's not like he fully adopted Mr. Han's uh, philosophy or anything. It's not like he's going to chop a cat in half. No, I did read that uh, Anna Capri's character, actually, she sided with Han in the fight. Ah. Uh, and they cut that section out. 
Yeah, because Saxon really had a thing for her. Yeah. Here's a woman that can teach you things. <laughs> teach you how to be a man. <laughs> and he, this is really good. You can just see how just leaves exhausted. And Roper's exhausted, too. They're just so happy that it's all over and that they survived it. I kind of wish that they had been able to make a sequel. I think they were talking about making a sequel to this, right? The Dragon Returns or something? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that this would have been the start of a a Warner Brothers uh, Bruce Lee franchise. Yeah. Every time Braithwaite gives them another uh, assignment to go find and kill another bad guy, that'd be awesome. That would be. And Way of the Dragon wasn't released in the States until after Lee's death. So it was marketed as a sequel to Enter the Dragon, and they called it Return of the Dragon. But the, the idea for the sequel never materialized. Those the names of those movies just used to drive me crazy. Cause it was like, was it like the big boss was called fist of fury and fist of fury was called the Chinese connection. And it was just like all of these different names for stuff. And I was like, what am I watching? What is this movie now? I couldn't keep up with it. I had, I had it all written out with arrows. Yeah. You know, and, and apparently it had to do with, um, uh, naming conventions on the VHS tapes. Mm. Right. Well, Mike, I appreciate uh, you joining me for Enter the Dragon. Do you have any final thoughts? If you haven't seen Enter the Dragon, what are you doing listening to us talk about it like this? <laughs> but my goodness, go check out Enter the Dragon and check out all of the Bruce Lee films, except for Game of Death. But watch those four films. You are not going to be disappointed. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. 